2: That's moe, M-O-W-I, M-O-W-I salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain Select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball, and thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can get more from Milk Street by following us on Instagram at 177 Milk Street. There you can find free recipes, cooking tips, videos from our world travel, plus much more. That's Instagram at 177 Milk Street. Now please enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In Tanzania, 200 hunter-gatherers called the Hadza have one of the world's most diverse diets, consisting of over 800 plants and animals. But much of their diet consists of honey, which they harvest by collaborating with birds.
3: The humans whistle and attract the honey guide bird. The bird wants the wax, and so they lead the humans to the bee's nest. The humans go up, smoke out the bees, take the honey, and leave behind some of the wax for the birds. This
2: partnership might be a million years old, but now this tradition is endangered. Journalist Dan Saladino shares this story and other tales of food facing extinction. That's coming up later on the show. First, it's my interview with Jess Damick about her book, Salad Freak, Recipes to Feed a Healthy Obsession. Jess, welcome to Milk Street.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So let me ask a question you're asked 12 times a day. (laughs) Um, What is a salad? And the, the reason I ask that is I'm not sure I have the answer. Because virtually any ingredient, protein, citrus, beans, pulses can go into a salad. It's not really ingredient based. So so what is a salad?
4: You know, I think one of the really fun things about this book was exploring that definition and really pushing it. I, I kind of just let myself be inspired by what was around me. Um, going into the farmer's markets or my garden or even the grocery store and just taking it from there. Always, always a lot of produce. That's really the main thing in my definition of a salad. Whether it's cooked or raw, the proportion on the plate is always more produce than anything else.
2: So before we get to some of the recipes, w- which I really enjoyed, uh, let's do some basics. I grew up being taught French cooking. And everyone emulsified their dressings, right? Yes. Uh, and I thought, like, if, if you didn't emulsify a dressing, you know, you'd have to go to culinary jail or something. <laughs> um, but I, I've completely given up on that. I notice in your book you, you very often don't emulsify either. So what's the deal with emulsified dressings?
4: You know, I, I also went to the French Culinary Institute, and I learned that you must emulsify. You must use a very specific ratio of mustard to oil to vinegar, And I just, I just kind of let go, you know, it it can be as simple as olive oil and lemon juice and some salt. A lot of people have asked me, what's like the, the biggest takeaway you want people to get from this book? And it's, please make your own salad dressing. I think after over 10 years of doing this, my parents finally make their own salad dressing all the time, and they are, like, so surprised that it does make such a big difference.
2: Uh, Let's talk about salt. Um, These days, I actually don't put the salt in the dressing. I use some very coarse, like, Malden salt Mm -hmm. just sprinkled on, and I like that hit of salt. Is that something you do, or do you always add the salt to the dressing?
4: Well, it kind of depends because sometimes I, I like to season the dressing when I it's something like tender leafy greens or something that's going right. to really get coated in the dressing. But sometimes the crunch from a sprinkle of flaky sea salt on top can be so nice, especially I just... I'm planting my tomatoes in the backyard, so I really have tomatoes on the brain. And all I can think about is just drizzling fat tomatoes with some really good olive oil and just a sprinkle of malden flaky sea salt. I mean, that's perfection.
2: Let's do some recipes. Uh mandarins and cream.
4: The cover girl.
2: Yeah. Well that I, I love I love the name and I love the concept. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you do a lot of pairing of dairy like burrata, etc which I like, but just talk about this recipe.
4: You know, this recipe was really inspired by creamsicles or Orange Juliuses. There's something so decadent about that wonderful combination of orange and cream. And I think it really flips the idea of salad on its head to most people, because when you think of a salad, you're not thinking of something that's decadent. And this is, you know, whether you're eating it for breakfast or you're serving it alongside a meal or you're having it as dessert, it's just, it's so good. When you think about
2: texture, I know one of your salads, you crisped up prosciutto Mm -hmm. to give it texture. Are there other tricks um, to add flavor or texture?
4: Sure, charring, roasting, grilling. Um, Another big trick that I use throughout the book is putting sliced vegetables in ice baths. You know, if you put a thinly sliced radish in an ice bath, that's going to change the texture so much. Hmm. It's why, you know, you go to a a restaurant and salads are always like so crisp and fresh. And it's such an easy little thing Hmm. to do at home that makes a huge difference.
2: Nicoise salad, I didn't realize that it did not have tuna in it initially. It was anchovies. That was the origin of it. I, that really surprised me.
4: Yeah, um, that was one of, you know, I, I really tried to start fresh with a lot of these recipes, but the Nicoise was one that I did look into the history a little bit. And um, it's fascinating. It's, it's a salad that's been around for a really, really long time. And again, that's one that, though it Differed a bit from the original just anchovy version. I kept it pretty close to the classic, except I love freshening up anything I can with some fresh herbs. And I think that really goes a long way in my version of the salad.
2: Um, I've asked people this uh, frequently, like what's, what's sort of your go-to? People stop over unexpectedly you throw together a salad. Do, do you have a salad that's sort of your go-to unexpected guests? The show up salad?
4: Yes. I would say the salad that I make the most often is there's a little gem salad that has this creamy lemon vinaigrette. Mm. And this vinaigrette, I guess it's my secret weapon. It's mayonnaise and lemon juice and a little bit of lemon zest. But it's so simple. Those are two things I always have on hand. And, you know... It, it, I don't always have Little Gem on hand, but it, it works with anything. This salad comes together in just a few minutes and it goes with everything. It also, in place of croutons, I use toasted nuts with a little bit of pecorino or parmesan cheese, and it's just. It's so flavorful, so simple, offers a big dose of freshness and just a little something green to go alongside whatever you're eating. Jess,
2: it's been a pleasure. I I love salads, and uh, I've now learned a thing or two or three. Thank you.
4: Uh, Thank you so much. This has been fun.
2: That was Jess Damick. Her book is Salad Freak, Recipes to Feed a Healthy Obsession. Next up, it's time to take calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Everyone in my family loves ice cream. I mean, my wife buys ice cream, quote-unquote, for the kids.
5: Uh-huh, we know about they that ploy. It keeps
2: disappearing. Uh-huh. So do you love ice cream, and if so, have some secret way of serving it?
5: I love ice cream, but there's other things I'd rather blow my calories on. However, I will say, if I had to pick a favorite one, it would be Coffee Heath Bar Crunch. Really? It reminds me of there was a wonderful ice cream shop in Harvard Square where I used to go when I was a kid. They had a sundae with coffee, ice cream, and butterscotch sauce. To this day, that That is my favorite combo of those two things because they're both sort of bitter. And uh, they really play nicely together. It's bitter. I would
2: like it. Yeah. Uh, well, absolutely. hey. I do make ice cream a few times a year at home using creme fraiche in it.
5: <gasps> nice. Well, it
2: also does something weird to the texture. It makes it smoother. I don't really? understand why. Really? Yeah. I got this from, it was a cookbook from a restaurant in Venice, California, actually. And it was a ginger vanilla Ooh, ice cream.
5: Ooh, now you're talking.
2: That was quite good. Yeah. Yeah. I like delicious. that. Okay. Let's stop dreaming about
5: ice cream ice cream
2: (laughs) take a call all right
5: welcome to milk street who's calling
6: my name is ann
5: hi ann where are you calling from
6: underhill center vermont
5: how can we help you today
6: i make homemade mayonnaise i've been making it for years using my mother's recipe and the only problem i've ever run into is having it break while i'm making it which happens every now and then But lately, I'd say in the past year, I've had a new problem where the mayonnaise comes out fine, but it separates as soon as it comes in contact with whatever you're spreading it on, or it seems fine for a while, like days or a week, and then suddenly in the jar it starts to break. And I have no idea why that's happening, and I'm wondering if you know.
5: Tell me what's in your mayonnaise and how you make it. Two egg yolks. Mm -hmm.
6: a teaspoon of dry mustard, half a teaspoon of salt, and then a total of four tablespoons of vinegar, but split into two. I put all of those ingredients and two tablespoons of vinegar into a glass Pyrex measuring cup, beat it just to get the egg yolks mixed in. And then very slowly, I add two cups of oil. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, I add two more tablespoons of vinegar or to taste one or two.
5: Okay, because there's several things that make a mayonnaise split. One is you add the oil too fast. I mean, it sounds like you know most of these. You don't have enough of an emulsifier. You don't have enough liquid so the oil separates out. Or you overbeat it is another one. Sounds like it's not a stable emulsion, and that's why it splits later. But let's see what Chris has to say. You're the
2: mayonnaise expert.
5: I have two recipes for mayonnaise yeah. in my most recent cookbook. I love mayonnaise. You had two cups of oil, and how
2: much vinegar was used?
6: Two tablespoons in the first part, and then one to two at the end. And that's, I'm wondering uh, that's if— That's a problem. But I've been making this the same way forever, and I've never until recently had the problem with it breaking after it was made. Well, the
2: formula that is sort of in the back of my head is one tablespoon of vinegar for a cup of oil. That's sort of the ratio I'm used okay. to. So it sounds like you're actually using four. I would try not adding that extra vinegar at the end. Um, okay. Now, let's go back to something you just said, though. You said you've been doing the same procedure for a long time, and just recently it's not working. Did you do change your type of oil, for example?
6: Yeah, I've been waiting to Aha! say that. Uh-huh. I. I used to always use canola oil um, or just a vegetable oil. And in the past year or so, I've been using avocado oil. Ah.
7: Uh
2: The first question I was when something stops working is, did you change something? It's the Sherlock Holmes question. I would go back to vegetable oil and just give it a shot. Because it may be something Uh about the avocado oil that has a higher saturated fat content or something else is going on. Yeah. Uh,
5: That would be my guess. Yeah, okay. I think he's right. And the eggs are the same size?
6: No. I mean, I don't know. I have my own chicken, so it's that you never know.
2: I would use vegetable oil, don't add vinegar at the end, see what happens. And then if that works, then if you like more vinegar taste, then try a second batch with more vinegar at the end, then you know it's just the oil if that works.
6: Mm-hmm. And would it be better to incorporate that vinegar by hand?
5: Yes. Don't overbeat it. Yeah. Okay. I don't really see the vinegar as that much of a problem. I think you're right about the oil, Chris. But I also think you might want to start paying attention to the size of your egg yolks because the eggs are very, very important in there in terms mm-hmm. of holding the oil droplets.
6: The bigger, the better?
5: Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank and you, give that a and shot. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank
6: you very much. Yeah. All right.
5: Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to save you from culinary disaster. Please give us a call any time. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
0: Hi, it's Jacob Rehm calling from Ottawa, Ontario.
2: How can we help you?
0: Uh, So I've ran into an issue over the last while where I want to practice making some sort of dish, but... The amount that I end up making, it makes my family sick of it to the point they don't want to eat it anymore.
2: <laughs> I know the feeling.
0: So what can I do to um, get that practice I'm looking for, but also keep my family happily fed?
2: Give me a couple examples of the types of recipes you're making over and over again.
0: Most recently, it was pupusas. I wanted to work out that uh, technique for pushing the filling with your thumbs and then patting it out to that flat patty. I managed to get through five nights of that before I was told not to do it anymore. Um, previously, it's happened when I got really into pizza dough for a while.
2: Well, I mean, you've mentioned two things where the topping slash filling can be changed, right? So it's not like you're making tapioca pudding every night. I mean, there is variety within the category. I had the same problem. I remember doing my first cookbooks. I would make the same bloody thing every night over and over again. Here's what I would do. Here's what I did. Do a lot of research. Be very careful about what you're testing and try to test more than one thing at a time. So figure out, like with the pizza, how to test the topping and the resting time and the type of flour all in the same time. I would do it two nights in a row. Give it a break and then come back and then give it a break so you really can think about what you want to test next time. That's my best uh or get a new family. I guess that's the other problem. I mean, you yeah. have to just go get an apartment somewhere, or get a little van, park it outside your house, and you can just live there. Uh, Sarah, do you have some suggestions?
5: Yeah, yeah, I do. Aside from what Chris just said, which I think was all very useful, I think it's very important. It's like when I develop recipes for my cookbooks or for anything I'm doing, I take notes. First, I write down the recipe as I hope. I will make it. And then after I've made the recipe, I taste it and I write notes, what I liked, what I didn't like, and very specifically what I thought I could change to make it better. If you keep a diary, it doesn't matter if you don't make it for another week because you go right back and look at it.
0: I do normally keep notes, although normally that gets me so excited about reiterating on the recipe that I want to make it again as soon as possible.
2: There's a question we haven't asked. After five nights of eating papooses, <laughs> weren't you getting sick of eating them every night for dinner?
0: Um, a bit at times, although my um, drive to do it better next time usually overwhelms right. me being sick of the food.
5: <laughs> well, well uh, you're, that's good. You know, maybe that's you good. should work in restaurants. Yeah. Uh, or in Perfect. recipe development, because this is the kind of stamina you need, you know. Every single time you make the same dish to want to make it perfectly. And then it just does get better the more you make it.
2: Yeah, I remember years ago we used to hire cooks, and, and the first thing we'd ask is, do you mind making something 35 times in a row, literally 35 times in a row? If you got that blank sort of stare, <laughs> then you knew that was not the right person. But if it was like you, like, yeah, man, I can, I'll can. i nail it on the 30th, then you're hired. I think Sarah's right. I think you have exactly the right personality. Very few people have that enthusiasm for the repetition. And my condolences to your family after the yeah, five nights. Yeah, all out. those
5: pupusas, right. Pupusas, so okay, <laughs> okay, take care, man. Yes, thank you so right. much for advice.
2: Yeah, all take right, care. All right, Jacob. Bye. Bye-bye. I really did have revolts like that, I remember. I'd be making chicken soup. Well, that's not so bad, but... Tapioca pudding every night. Yeah, is, that, that would that, get you. Yeah, yeah. That, it's like, you know, what hospital am I in? <laughs> it's pretty awful.
5: Well, anything, every, you know, even something you absolutely adored, if you eat it six nights in a row, it's, it really does begin to it's, wear. It does begin to wear. Got to mix it up.
2: Right. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, journalist Dan Saladino tells us about wild coffee, wind cured mutton, and other foods on the brink of extinction.
8: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you.
4: For
6: 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
2: This is Most Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Dan Saladino about his book, Eating to Extinction. It's based on his BBC radio series, The Ark of Taste, where he travels the world in search of foods at risk of extinction.
8: Yeah, let's go, yeah, let's go to the shed. I've
3: traveled nearly a thousand miles to end up being shown inside someone's shed at the bottom of their garden. But I'm here because I've been promised a taste of a food that's found nowhere else. This is a typical setup. This is a typical, what you call a drying house. I was told it was a type of food, but at first glance, I'm not entirely convinced.
2: It's mould all over the place, so it looks bad. It looks almost uh, something that you
3: cannot eat. But It's almost as if we've walked into the shed and it's something you've forgotten. Yeah, it's
2: also something you found on the road, so it doesn't look tasty. So... Dan, that's a clip of you on a trip to the Faroe Islands in search of wind-cured mutton. Sounds like a rock and roll band of some kind. (laughs) But um, so what is wind-cured mutton and how come you had to travel to the North Atlantic to
3: try it? Mm. Well, I wanted to collect stories that reflected food of a place, but also the ingenuity, the skills the knowledge acquired by people who'd managed to survive in uh, different parts of the world. And in the case of the Faroe Islands, which is a really harsh landscape in which there are barely any trees, it wasn't possible to create fire in a way in which you could boil seawater to create salt and preserve meat that way. So by creating these sheds, which are called chatla, they have gaps in the walls and so the salty wind blows in from the North Atlantic and what they discovered is that if you hung meat from the rafters of these barns, the meat is coated, it's covered in this fine salt and so instead of rotting away, the meat slowly, gently ferments and is preserved.
2: You know it always makes me wonder like who was the first person, <laughs> and when the spring came and they saw that haunch of of mutton and it, it doesn't look very good, right? I mean, from the outside
3: it it doesn't look edible right? it, it looks shocking in a way because you would walk into one of these huts and it does look almost if it's still alive. Some people have described it as as looking like a bit of of roadkill and <laughs> at the same right. time if you taste it. Well, some people have described it as tasting somewhere bet- between uh, parmesan cheese and death. But actually, when I, when I tasted it, I, I thought it was like a fine piece of prosciutto.
2: So th- let's back up a second. So the reason, well, there are many reasons, but one reason you're interested in this, you write, uh, most of the world's food is in the control of just four corporations. One in four beers drunk around the world is the product of one brewer. That stopped stop me. And there are 1,500 varieties of banana of which we basically use one. Mm. So your interest in food items that are slowly going extinct is the diversity by its very nature is a good thing. Is it a good thing just because – you like the stories and the culture around it or because of the value
3: of diversity long-term in, in food production? Mm. Well, it's it's a question well put because I started off with falling in love with these stories of culture and history and place. And as with the mutton on the Faroe Islands, I, you know, I love these stories of how did people survive and why did that food exist? But when I started to collect these stories, I... Had that important question to answer, which was, why should we care? And the deeper I looked, the more it became clear to me that diversity really does matter for our future, including our future food security. And with this uniformity that you described, with this high level of consolidation globally, it's created cheap, abundant food, but we have stored up risk. And I think there are many reasons why now it's becoming clearer that that is a strategy that needs to change.
2: Well, you also commented that historically our diets were just enormously diverse. You mentioned in 1950 in Denmark, they dug up the intact body of a man 2,500 years old. His stomach was a porridge made with, quote, barley flax and the seeds of 40 different plants. Mm. And even today in East Africa, there's a, a tribe, a group of hunter-gatherers, where they depend on 800 plant and animal species. So the idea of diversity was de
3: facto, I guess, throughout most of human history, right? Absolutely. And I was very lucky to spend some time with the Hadza tribe in East Africa, which are among the last remaining... Uh, hunter-gatherers who are practicing no form of agriculture, their potential menu consists of 800 different plants and, and animal species. And of the 800 different plants and animal species or sources of food, the number one food is honey.
2: What's interesting about this honey is how it's gathered. Yeah, I mean, they have a collaboration with a particular species of bird,
3: and the bird actually leads them to the honey. That's right. So to actually find the bees nests in which the honey is could take them hours going from baobab tree to baobab tree really high up. So over time, and we think this could go back to the uh, origins of human control of fire and the the use of smoke. So we're talking a million years, perhaps the humans whistle and Hmm. um, attract the honey guide bird. The bird wants the wax. But the wax in the bee's nest is far too dangerous for them to access on their own because of the stings from the bees. And so they lead the humans to the bee's nest. The humans go up with the smoke, smoke out the bees, take the honey Mm. and leave behind some of the wax for the birds. So uh, absolutely right. It's a collaboration. And again, reflecting this story of diversity, they are a clue to that diversity that we evolved as humans to consume. And so again, this relatively short success story that we created mostly in the 20th century was one that drove out all of that diversity. But because it's such a short period of time in which that's happened, it is like one big experiment. So these last two examples bring
2: up a pretty interesting question. Uh, These were foods... Originally needed for survival, technologies now come around, so they're no longer essential. So the question, I think, is can tradition survive in a world that doesn't need tradition?
3: Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I, I got to see this. I went into supermarkets on the Faroe Islands, and there were ships arriving a couple of times a week from Denmark, filling up supermarkets with every food imaginable. But there were people who were determined to keep the tradition of the um, shishpachat, which is the fermented meat, going. And in a sense, I mean, this is one of the other things I I try and explore in the book, that what uh, what does it mean to be human when you're living in a world in which there are so many points of difference? And I think for many of the people I interviewed, you know, the food was a reflection of their culture and was an important part of their identity.
2: So so we, even if it has no real practical value, in some ways it has cultural value, which I totally agree with. Mm. Wild coffee. I, I love this story for every reason because uh, so there's really only two strains of coffee, right, that's grown now in the world. But you could just let's start at the beginning. First of all, it started a long time ago,
3: which I didn't realize. Yeah. Right. yeah. The botanical story is fascinating because this does go back – unimaginable lengths of time in what is today the southern part of Ethiopia. And that's where Arabica comes from. That was the coffee that was introduced into Europe and the coffee that spread around the world. And for for many centuries, that was coffee. But fast forward to the late 19th century and disease hits the crop. And this is when Robusta really starts to become a cultivated coffee crop. Robusta as its name implies, a much hardier type of coffee discovered in central Africa. What's, what's really interesting here is that Arabica and Robusta, which pretty much are 100% of the world's coffee supply, are only two of what is now understood to be 130 different coffee species. And there are now endangered or near extinct coffee species that botanists are searching for because both Arabica and Robusta might not fare so well with climate change. Arabica is quite sensitive to temperature change. Robusta needs quite consistent rainfall. And so botanists at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew realised that there were botanists reporting back to Britain in the 1850s saying there's a coffee in Sierra Leone that actually tastes better than Arabica. And it's called Stenophylla. One of the botanists at Kew today, he found one surviving tree, which is like finding one surviving rare panda, for example. You need two to reproduce. So he carried on trekking through the forest with some other botanists, found another tree. And now today there are 4,000 saplings that are being grown in Sierra Leone to bring back this thought to be extinct coffee, because we will need that coffee for the future. So if you, like me, are a coffee lover, I can't wait to try Stenophila, because it's supposed to be delicious. Um, But yeah, we, we need diversity, and diversity is, it can be delicious and, you know, so interesting to explore, and I think that's what we should all be doing more.
2: So at the end of the day, after doing this research, traveling around the world, uh now what? I mean, what's your vision of the future? Are you now more encouraged by what you've seen about the human race's ability to preserve diversity and finding solutions to food and other problems through diversity? Or are you at this point going, you know, I know what we need to do, but it's unlikely we're going to do mm. it?
3: I know what we need to do, and we haven't acted for a very long time when there have been people for more than a century saying diversity matters. This is not a new message, but we haven't acted on it. Um, I think the world is waking up to change because we need to change. The UN meeting last year, COP26, when the world agreed that it needed to reduce emissions and find other ways of, of producing food, that's one reason for change. The pandemic showed us the instabilities the fragilities of supply chains if you put all of those things together it makes you realize why diversity does matter i'm not anti-science i'm not anti-technology but we need huge amounts of diversity for the future
2: dan it's been uh, it's been really a pleasure having you on Street. thank you so much
3: thank you so much for inviting me on the program
2: That was Dan Saladino. He hosts the food program on BBC Radio 4. His book is Eating to Extinction, the world's rarest foods and why we need to save them. Survival produces innovation, including using birds to scout for honey. I grew up summers working on a farm that had a hand pump in the sink and also an outhouse. I remember those days with great affection, but in 1969, when indoor plumbing was finally installed, the lives of those farmers were vastly improved. Now, one might argue that using an outhouse on a cold February night brings one closer to nature, but that opinion is only held by folks who answer nature's call indoors. As technology makes much of the past obsolete, we lose part of our humanity. But we also gain lives that are longer, healthier, and actually easier than those of even Roman emperors. You know, every trade off has something lost, but it also has something gained. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, falafel. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, when I'm in town in Boston, there's a little place off Harvard Square where I get falafel. A very nice guy, and he fries them to order, as it were. And they're really quite good. But I always wondered, and you always wondered, you know, is there the ultimate falafel? (laughs) And what would that be? So you went to Jordan to answer this question, and you definitely did answer it.
1: Yeah, you know, I chose Jordan for a very particular reason. It's kind of at the crossroads of the Arab world. And so you get a lot of different influences coming in. And as you know, falafel is, I don't want to quite say a universal in the Arab world, but it's prominent. And a lot of those traditions have come together in Jordan. And I had heard tales of their epic falafel. Now, you and I have eaten falafel all over the world. And I'll say I've had some falafel in Boston, not impressed. But I knew that if I went to Jordan, I would get the real deal. And in fact, I did. And I'm just going to tell you, first of all, the outside, shatteringly crisp, like unbelievably, wonderfully light, yet crunchy. The inside, pillowy, airy, fluffy. The flavoring, bold, like really bold. And that's due to baharat, a seasoning blend that's used in everything in Jordan. You know, can be anything, by the way. You know, baharat actually translates loosely as something yummy. And (laughs) you can get a million different combinations of baharat, but a lot of them use things like warm spices, like cardamom and coriander, cumin, cinnamon, sumac, black pepper, things like that. Anyway, the best falafel I had used a lot of baharat, to season them. A lot of herbs to give them freshness and keep them light. And I'll just tell you, they were the best falafel I've ever had in my life. You know, when I
2: tasted them in our kitchen, the thing that really struck me besides the incredibly thin, uh, crunchy exterior, it was the amount of herbs. I mean, there's yeah. this massive quantity of herbs. It's almost like half herbs inside, Yeah, which is very different than when it's, you know, all chickpeas or fava beans.
1: Right. No, absolutely. There were a ton of herbs, fresh herbs used in falafel. And it's a fascinating process. So, you know, the chickpeas are never cooked for falafel. They are soaked overnight and then they go through a meat grinder <laughs> and it comes out looking like ground beef, frankly. And they throw the fresh herbs, cilantro and parsley, into the meat grinder as well. And what you get is this like ground beef looking green Stuff, which, okay, right there is not very appealing, right? But then all the spices go in and they're formed into balls and they drop them into the sizzling oil and they come out just so amazingly light. Now, there was a secret to that lightness, which, you know, as you know, a bad falafel is going to be gummy or dense on the inside, regardless of how crispy it is on the outside. They get around that. They use either baking soda baking powder or a combination of them hmm. inside the falafel and that produces this light fluffy texture on the inside which is such a wonderful contrast to the crispy crunchy exterior they really nailed it it was so good I'm ready to get back on a plane and have some more
2: you know the last thing I really liked was the tahini sauce because yes. it had yogurt in it but it also had a lot of lemon juice so it was very bright it wasn't just a dull blanket it was really a nice addition
1: I love tahini and I will gladly slosh it over anything. But they have a sauce that lightens it up in Jordan. They call it kind of the holy trinity of Arabic cooking and it's a combination of tahini, lemon juice and yogurt. And sometimes they thin it with a little bit of water. But the result is that you get the richness of the tahini without it weighing things down because on its own tahini can be kind of heavy. It's so good paired again with that kind of herbal spiciness of the falafel and the crunchiness and you get this creaminess from the tahini sauce. It's really phenomenal.
2: Jam, thank you. You found um, and we we don't like to say best because these things, you know, the next time you go on on a trip, you might find one you like as much. (laughs) But for now, the crispiest, lightest, and most flavorful falafel uh, we found today. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. You can get this recipe for falafel at MilkStreetRadio.com.
2: This is Most Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us how to live with relish and zest. That's coming up in just a You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted and smoked barbecue. Check out WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. That's WonderfulPistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping, as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select live up to the all-new Lexus GX luxury beyond limits experience amazing at your Lexus dealer you know I love salmon so much that once in a while I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing but that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish the rest of the time of course I purchase salmon at the supermarket and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised Moe farm Ray Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Mowie Salmon is available ready-to-eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Salmon.us to learn more.
6: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
9: Right at home.
7: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Moment. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Barbara Spear. Hi, Barbara. Where are you calling from? Lavernia, Texas. And what is your question today?
10: I went to Texas School for the Blind. And when I was there, we uh, had cottage-style meals in the dormitories. We passed all the bowls around the table because people learned to serve themselves and help their plates and be independent. And in the dorm that I was in when I was older, we had an award-winning And she made something that she called lemon souffle. Before I left, I got the recipe from her and then I lost it. It wasn't a true souffle because you did not have to separate the eggs, but it was not a custard and it was not a quiche. It was cakey on the top, and then it had kind of the custard in the bottom.
5: Okay, bingo, bingo, that's it. it right there. That's a pudding cake. I have a recipe in my cookbook I call creamsicle pudding cake. You know, you make a dry flour and salt and sugar and baking powder, and you mix those together, and then you mix together some cream. In mine, you used orange zest. You know, if you were going to do the lemon version, you would use lemon zest. It also had melted butter, lemon juice, you know, some vanilla. You mix that, and then you add that to the flour mixture. It's a very thick batter. And then meanwhile, you pour liquid over it. Right. In my recipe, it was orange juice, which I'd combined with a little bit of water. Her recipe was probably lemon juice combined with a little bit of water and perhaps even a pinch of sugar. That sounds really good. And then you just bake it off, and it naturally separates.
2: The liquid on top, the density of it, it's heavier. And as it bakes, the liquid goes to the bottom and mixes with some of the dry ingredients and becomes a custard. And then the dry ingredients go up to the top and form a cake. Right, And that's exactly what you had, and it's a great dessert.
5: Oh, it's a fantastic dessert. dessert. Just go Google, you know, lemon pudding cake, and you'll probably find several versions, and you can just play around with it, you know, until you find the one you like the most.
10: I have been curious if you could add something to it, like blended cottage cheese or a little yogurt or something like that to take a little bit of the sweetness out of it. Because even with the lemon juice, this does turn out very sweet.
2: I would say you could cut the sugar by almost a third. I think you'd probably be okay. That's what I do when I make one of these little recipes. I always cut
5: the sugar back. Or you top it off with the yogurt or the sour cream, and then you have a nice contrast. It's sort of yeah, fun. Yeah, you can do that.
10: Right, after you baked it.
5: Yeah.
2: Barbara, it's been uh, a great pleasure, and I'm glad you've got the recipe. That's terrific. Yeah
10: so much. And I, I just enjoyed talking to y'all. I love y'all so.
2: Well, we'd love having you on the show. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Thank you. Take
2: care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with dinner, give us a ring anytime. Our number 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
11: This is Lisa from Londonderry, Vermont.
2: Oh, I love Londonderry. Yes. How can we help you?
11: Well, Christopher, I make some quiches here at the lodge and frittatas and stratas. And one of my problems is if I'm making a rather large quiche and I put some item in it, like spinach and sausage, broccoli, whatever... Some of the items just seem to migrate to the top after I've cooked it. And I cook them in a water bath so they don't burn. So they're in there for quite a long time.
2: Before you put the additions in, are you pre-cooking them or sauteing them or something? Yes. Is this in a typical crust in a pie plate, or how are you cooking it?
11: It's a crustless quiche, and they're in... I'd say a 9-by-13 casserole dish.
2: This is like a 325 oven with a water bath? It's a low oven, long time, long cooking time? Correct. The only thing I'd suggest is I don't think you need to use a water bath for this. It's not a cheesecake. Oh. In fact, you, you can do without water bath with a cheesecake as well. I might suggest getting rid of the water bath because it'll set faster and you have a better chance of things being distributed throughout. I think it's taking so long for the mixture to set that by that time, everything sort of floated to the top. In any case, I don't think you need a water bath for this. It's not that delicate. One other thing you can do is you can cook it, let's say at 350 or 375 for a while, then turn off the oven, open the door for five minutes, put a wooden spoon in there, and then close the door to finish. And that's a trick we use for cheesecake. So you end up with a very delicate, perfectly cooked quiche egg mixture without overcooking it and without using a water bath. I think it's the water bath is probably the problem. Sarah?
5: I agree, actually, 100%, which is rare for us here. I've never had this problem with things floating before. But I generally make a frittata, not a crustless yeah. quiche. And I wonder if that might just be easier. Could you sort of, you start it setting... On top of the stove, have you made frittatas before? I
11: do, yeah.
5: And you've Um, never had the problem of the floating business, right? No, they're just smaller. And you need to make something big for big crowds?
11: For 20, yeah, 25 people for sure.
5: all right. Well, then I agree with what Chris said. Well,
2: frittata's got a very different texture, though. Right. It's not so custardy.
5: No, it's not. But if she's concerned about things floating, right. I've never had them float in a frittata. It's sort of like they all get glued in the beginning of the process. Yeah,
11: they cook faster and they're just smaller in general. So right. they don't have that much time to move around.
2: Right. Well, well, you could use a really big cast iron skillet. Yeah. frittata. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also frittatas are fast. Yeah. They cook in just 10 minutes.
5: Right. Know. I think it's pretty yummy. I usually put cheese on top and let it brown a little bit in the end. But just another thought. But I would lose the water bath. I think that is the problem.
2: Okay, I'll give it a try. Guys, one other thing. The mixture for the quiche, are you using just milk and eggs and cheese? Are you using uh, heavy cream? What are you using in the mixture, the dairy?
11: I'm using usually a heavy cream. Um, Hmm. It depends on what I'm making. Sometimes it could even be a sour cream. Right. Um, That's a little heavier, yeah. So. Anyway,
2: you said the lodge. What lodge is it?
11: This is Blue Genshin Lodge on Magic Mountain.
2: Oh, I just drove by Magic Mountain yesterday. <laughs> so I, I, next
5: time you'll have to stop in. I love Magic That's here. right. You have to stop in and stay high. And get a piece of quiche.
2: Lisa, it's been a pleasure. Yes, thanks for <laughs> taking care. <laughs> yep. Okay. Thanks Bye. so
5: much. Right. Bye.
2: Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's time to get a language lesson from Grant Barrett mm-hmm. and Arthur Barnett. Grand Martha, what's up? Hi, Chris. How you doing? Howdy. I'm good. How are you? Are you living your life with
9: fervor and gusto and zest and with relish?
2: Uh, fervor, I think, would be probably the best because it implies a frenetic lifestyle yeah, as well as passion.
9: And it's food-related, which is why we're here. Fervor comes from a Latin word meaning... To boil. Really? Yeah, yeah, fervor, huh. F-E-R-V-O-R in Latin means to boil. And so you, if you do something with fervor, you're active as a boiling pot of, of stew. I mean, it's related to um, fervent and fervid and to effervesce, which well, wow. comes from Latin meaning
2: boil up. So, so I, I'm living life with fervor effervescently. Okay. So. Mm. <laughs> yes. yeah, exactly.
7: And fervently, right? If, if you're fervently in love with someone... Then you're acting with ardor, and ardor is another word that uh, comes from a Latin word that means to burn. So you're you're burning with desire.
2: So th- these are food and romantic terms, I guess. Right. Isn't yes. it funny how often those
9: intersect, yeah. food and love? Yeah. Even in platonic senses, we talk about eating the toes of babies, right? I could just eat you up, call people a snack or, or a
7: tall
2: drink mm. of water. Or, you know, you could call someone and say, I love you effervescently.
7: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You certainly could. Or maybe not.
2: (laughs) And so I want to hit those other ones,
9: relish, gusto, and zest, because we also do things in life with relish. And obviously that's a a food word. But it's got a strange path because it's also related to relax and release. They all ultimately come Mm. from the same Latin verb.
7: Relaxare. Mm -hmm. uh,
9: Relaxare. And in French, it means to release. So the food and drink are leaving taste or flavor behind. So if you're Hmm. doing something with relish, you're getting the flavor of the activity. It is adding flavor to your life.
2: Yeah, but what's interesting there is that relish is an accompaniment to something. Mm -hmm. But you're saying Mm -hmm. that to relish something or doing something with relish, you're extracting the full measure of the flavor of the activity which is a little different than adding relish to something else, right?
9: Well, if you think about relish in the original sense, a relish was something that you would add to meals that were generally very boring.
2: Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah
9: a beef that you boiled right. because otherwise right. you might die from it. Or you know, meals that were incredibly unhappy, but you would add these very spicy preserved relishes and that would add the bit of life to your food.
2: Is this the cookbook you guys are going to write, Grant and Martha's Unhappy Meals? <laughs>
9: Unhappy meals. Happy
2: meal. Here's how you boil a carrot, duh. How do I add relish to unhappy meals?
9: <laughs> and zest. Little needs to be said about zest, obviously citrus peel here from the French zest. But gusto has got a strange history as well. It has the same root as the word ragu, you know, the seasoned uh-huh. stew. It's that huh. G-O-U-T. Which, if you know French, taste. Yes, yeah. the French word for taste is G O U T. And most of the European languages have some form of gusto. English, Italian, Spanish have exactly that word. Of course, in German, it's (laughs) geschmack.
7: But uh, all those words come uh, from the Latin gustare, which means to taste. And uh, a lot of people might uh, have a little light bulb moment when you realize that this gustare in Latin also informs our word for when you don't like something. Disgust. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly.
9: But, you know, there are a lot of words for eating. We can throw down the grub. We can wade in. We can gobble, shovel it in, stow away the groceries. We can gorge on some food. So gorge is from the word throat. And we can chow down. And chow comes from a Cantonese word meaning to fry or cook. It's the same chow as in chow mein.
7: Hmm. Yeah, and the one that's always intrigued me is tuck in or tuck into. And it's a really weird um, expression if you think about it. Any idea why we would say you tuck into a salad?
2: Are you tucking in the napkin before you eat? I don't know.
7: (laughs) That's what I originally thought. But apparently um, it has to do with the fact that originally it was tuck meaning to consume or swallow. So you would tuck the food away inside of you, sort of like you house a hamburger, for example. (laughs) Um, But over time, tuck in and tuck into came to more emphatically mean to feed greedily or heartily.
2: Well, that reminds me of my favorite Jeeves in Worcester. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every time he he went to eat, he'd say he'd put on the old feed bag. Oh which yeah. I, yeah, which which mm-hmm. is self explanatory, but just a lovely <laughs> visual. Right? Yes, and and the
9: spinoff from Tuck is Tucker, which they use in Australia to refer to their mm. food. Right, I'm my mm-hmm. right. Tucker. Mm-hmm. Huh. And we've got glutton and gluttony as well. Glutton is an 800-year-old word. It comes from a Latin word meaning to swallow. It's related to glut, as in a, a huh. lot or too much of something. And gullet, meaning your throat.
2: Well, that, that makes me feel good. Instead of saying I'm a glutton, I'm just going to go tuck in to dinner. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Or shove it down the old cake hole, which Gobble. is also <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite expressions right. of all time. Right. Stow
9: away the groceries.
2: Grant Martha, uh, lots of ways of talking about overeating, but eating with great gusto. Thank you.
9: Yeah, sure. It's been zesty
2: fun.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for today. Over the last few years, we've produced more than 200 episodes of Milk Street Radio. And you can find them all on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. To explore Milk Street and everything we have to offer, please go to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can download our recipes, watch our TV show, learn about our magazine, or learn about our latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 milkstreet We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. Thanks, as always, for listening.
10: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinzebaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis. With production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Eggloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.